Hi, my name is Brandon Ford with the Lubrizol Corporation. I'm the Chief Accelerator Director. And to me, it's a matter of transformation. Being the agent for change inside a large organization is not for the faint of heart. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. The concept of innovation has been a corporate talking point for years, but the framework to harness disruptive thinking and visionary goals have yet to truly be established. Innovation should be as dynamic as the forces that make it necessary. In order to remain competitive now and into the future, it's not enough to replicate the success of more nimble challengers. When teams begin to think differently, traditional ways of operating become a thing of the past. While innovation may not be easy to affect in a $7.5 billion business, Success requires a confluence of skills that Brandon Ford has mastered through an enigmatic career. Nurse, lawyer, wine educator, tea master, and chief accelerator director of Lubrizol Life Science. So Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks for having me. At face value, you're a little bit of an enigma. You know, usually when I do these interviews, there's lots of stuff I can find online to kind of figure out what to talk about, but you're a little bit of a black box. So I had to sort of go back to the couple times we've met at conferences and all the conversations we've had over many glasses of wine to kind of pull this together. But I did find your personal website. And so at face value, it reads nurse, lawyer, wine educator, tea master, and chief accelerator director at Lubrizol Life Science. (laughs) 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 So, you know, as a way of setting the foundation um, for our conversation, can you share a little bit about your backstory? Because I also think it is all of those different nuances of you as a person that probably makes you very good at your job. I always tell people that I've kind of taken the scenic route to get to where I am and make little pit stops along the way and pick up some information and move on to the next. And I think, you know, for me, starting my career as a nurse was somewhat strategic. Young man in school, trying to figure out how to have a career that I knew that when I graduated, there would be a job at the end of the rainbow for me and not just debt. (laughs) And I chose nursing and it it was a wonderful profession and I love it, but I knew that I was only going to be there for a season in pediatric intensive care and burn unit, NICU. I think my personality, I knew I could only handle so much of that. So I decided to go back to school. And when I was weighing all the options, law school really presented itself as a really interesting option for me because at the time there were a lot of nurse lawyers who would provide counsel to either defense attorneys or plaintiff attorneys that were going through cases, particularly around malpractice. That was my goal was I was going to go to law school. I was going to work for and with doctors and nurses and other medical professionals that were being sued for malpractice and and provide legal counsel for them, having knowledge of the industry. And when I got to the firm, it just didn't work out that way. I met a partner while I was there who was doing corporate mergers and acquisitions. And 
he and I got along really well. And he asked me to join his group. And I said, well, I'm supposed to be over here in the health group <laughs> doing health stuff. That's what my degree is in, uh, right? So he was like, no, 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 no. Come over here and do corporate M&A. And I did it and I loved it. There was such an adrenaline rush of getting these deals together. And that's how I met Luberzal. Luberzal was actually a client. And when I worked on an M&A transaction with them, their general counsel at the time said, hey, I'm going to give you a job one day. I was a really young lawyer. I was probably two years out of law school. And I said, yeah, sure. And he was like, no, I'm going to give you a job one day. Just wait. And about a year later, he calls me and he says, I have a job for you. And I'm not going to interview anybody else. If you want it, it's yours. And I took it. I took it and I ran. <laughs> Did merger and acquisition work for Luberzal. Did some commercial contracts and things like that for Luberzal. But it was during that time that I was kind of surveying the landscape of all the lawyers in the legal department. I was looking at their age. I was thinking about my future. And I was like, well, my general counsel is not that much older than me. And when she's ready to retire, because we had a new one by then, I'm going to be ready to retire, not take another job <laughs> as a GC. So her and I, we sat down and, and she said, hey, look, you have your nursing degree, you have an MBA. Why don't you go and talk to some of the business folks about joining their team? And I did. I sat down with a bunch of different people, and uh, one of them ultimately became my boss. And his advice was, if you're going to be in this business, and I was focused on beauty, if you're going to be in this on the business side, then you got to go do some sales to be credible in the industry, to understand what it's about. You got to knock on doors. So I did that for a few years. And it was in that time that I started thinking about the accelerator because I was seeing this real need in the market for fast, innovative, turnkey solutions, not just for the big brands, but for the mid-tier and even the small brands. So that was really you know, how I ultimately got to the accelerator. Now, <laughs> along the way, <laughs> I moonlighted as a wine educator, and I still do. I've done that for almost 10 years. I absolutely love it. I started a small business on the side with my mom, and she helped out a lot in helping to grow that business, which I ultimately sold. It was a tea business, but it was inspired by wine. So all the teas were inspired by wine. So there was that connection there because I love the stories around beverages and the history behind them. You know, you can tell a whole story in a glass. So yeah, I've kind of hopped around. I'm, I'm a little uh, like that, where I like to dabble here and dabble there and pick up a little knowledge. But I do think it's helped me in my current role a lot. Yeah, my career has been a little bit of the same. People look at it and, you know, I don't think there's anyone who has had a career that really has no linear path <laughs> like mine. And it was very similar, you know, sort of you do something until it doesn't make sense and then you move on and, and look for the next thing. And I often feel like that suggestion to do sales, to learn the business is often so overlooked. I mean, if you're in marketing or you're in branding, like unless you really know what's happening on the front line, like how are you supposed to sort of create the tools or inform that? And very often people sort of kind of, I don't want to say look down on it, but it's just of no interest. But I'm with you. So valuable. People in Luberzal thought I was insane. You know, I was essentially going from the ivory tower out onto the battlefield. And they're like, what are you doing? 
but I've tried to visualize, I heard someone say, instead of thinking about your career as a ladder, to think about your career as a lattice. And you may have to go down in order to go up. You may have to go to the left or to the right in order to go up. And that's how I've kind of viewed my career and, and my profession is this lattice. And sometimes I may have to go down a few steps in order to learn some stuff in order to propel me forward. And I don't think I could do my job if I hadn't done sales because I built up so many friends, so many relationships from having to knock on doors and have real conversations with people about what was happening in the industry, you know, to hear customers yell at you about something that you didn't do. I've knocked on the corporate doors, right? I've also knocked on people's homes for the indie brand and they're working in their garage. They're like, hold the baby and I'm going to work and we can talk. <laughs> I often tell people, it's like, if you really want to know what's happening, go and stand on a Sephora sales floor. People right now are like, they kind of hide behind data and data is great, but there's people behind that data. And it always amazes me that I had um, someone from the investment community asked, they were doing a restage of a brand. And, you know, part of my process was going to spend time in the, the top doors that they were being sold in. And it was such a head scratcher for him. He was like, you're going to do what? I was like, I'm going to go stand on the sales floor and talk to customers and figure out what it is they like or don't like about your brand. And he was like, let me get this right. You are going to go stand on the sales floor. You're not going to send somebody else. You're going to stand on the sales floor. I was like, yes, I am. And guess what? I didn't get the project, but. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But I still believe in the process. <laughs> I agree. That's great. You got to talk to people if you really want to know what's going on, period. Yeah. Point blank. So let's talk about the accelerator a little bit. You know, accelerators sort of come in all shapes and sizes and they play different roles and functions. You know, Lubrizol has been around since 1928. So accelerators come in all shapes and sizes and play different roles and functions. And Lubrizol has been around since 1928. So the accelerator is definitely sort of a new development in sort of how they do business. Can you share a little bit about what you're building at the accelerator? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the accelerator was kind of born out of, again, what we were seeing that was happening in the market. So as a sales guy, I would go and I would sit an ingredient because at the core of Lubrizol is specialty ingredient. I was selling peptides and botanicals and fermented ingredients. And I would sit that ingredient on to the R&D person or the marketing person's desk and I would tell them all about it. They would love it. And I would come back three months later and it'd still be right where I left it. <laughs> And when I would inquire about why, it was always resource-driven oftentimes and time needed and even bureaucracy needed that needed to be overcome in order to be able to really utilize it. So Lubrizol started doing formulated products. So they would take that ingredient, they would stick it in a prototype. So now you can test it instead of having to formulate with it first. And I would, was experiencing basically the same thing. I would take now a prototype, a little bottle of serum or something like that with our ingredient in it, sit it on the table. And lo and behold, when I would come back, it would still be there and it hadn't been tried. It hadn't been tested. And you ran into more hurdles and it was really, hey, you know, now that it's formulated, I have to jump through a different set of hoops in order to really utilize it. 
And so that was when I started thinking, and can we just do it all? Is there a place where we can provide you with a real turnkey solution that will allow you to move faster with more innovation, leveraging Lubrizol's technology and expertise? So that was kind of how the program began. It's gone through some iterations over the four and a half or so years that we've started it. In the beginning, we were trying to think of ourselves as a almost a traditional accelerator. So we invested in some brands, funded VC. And what we are learning is that our sweet spot, the place where we can provide the most value to a customer is really in that turnkey solution. So that's when we started trying to say, what else does Lubrizol do really good? Well, we can formulate, we can make ingredients, we can manufacture, we have a global footprint, we have marketing, regulatory, legal, we have all of these things that a brand ultimately needs in order to launch something new into the market. So we packaged it all together in a per unit <laughs> price. So that is really the, the beauty and the value of the accelerator. Because we make the ingredients, we can leverage our own internal costs so that we can bring you higher levels of actives, more ingredients in your formulation without really affecting the price of the overall formulation, right? So you know that when you start adding actives into an ingredient, into a formulation, generally the higher the active concentration, not in all instances, of course, but more efficacious it becomes. We're putting in ingredients that really uh, high levels, clinically high levels, in order to maximize the efficaciousness of those products. And because we have a global footprint, we can do this pretty much anywhere. So if you come to me, Kelly, and you say, I really want to create a formulation for India. Well, we go to our application lab there, and we use local scientists and chemists there to craft a formulation that speaks to the needs of the people in that region, and then we can manufacture it for you. So, so we're, we're really trying to provide a full turnkey solution, leveraging our consumer market insight team, which is 4C Labs, and our marketing group, also leveraging the fact that we have both in vitro uh, and in vivo labs, where we can actually perform clinical studies and things like that on your unique formulation. So you mitigate your risk and you substantiate your claims when you're coming to the market. So, so the accelerator was originally thought about in the entrepreneurial sense. Uh, now we're just leveraging the name because we can get you to the market a lot faster than you probably could get there alone. To be competitive sort of in that indie space, it does require a lot of innovation and sort of probably thinking outside the multinational box, if you will, from sort of a speed and agility standpoint. One of the things that I also picked up in the very little that's online about you, which I love. I wish I could like have <laughs> nothing online. It's, it's quite an achievement. <laughs> You've referred to yourself as chief troublemaker because you're always rustling feathers and challenging the status quo. I think it takes a really unique skill set to be able to navigate kind of the bureaucracy and what makes a multinational tick especially one that's approaching 100 years of being in business, and also be the one in the room that is always championing innovation and, you know, thinking about what's next. How do you create something totally new that requires sort of this entrepreneurial mindset 
within the confines of a large organization. I mean, it takes a good personality, which you have, but beyond that. (laughs) Thank you. Well, you know, I think that first and foremost, no is not no. (laughs) in this context (laughs) only. (laughs) Um, You know, um, I heard a lot of no's and I heard a lot, it can't be done. I heard a lot of it's too difficult. And for me, that was basically par for the course. I expected that when you're trying to shift the the direction of a ocean liner, it's really difficult. I think where I was able to really changed the tide was because I wasn't new to the organization. And I think if you're new coming into an organization, there is a certain amount of trust and credibility that's required for your leadership to be able to say, yes, I'm going to hand you the reins of this thing and I'm going to risk the reputation, the hundred years worth of reputation of this organization. I'm going to bet it on you. So for me, having been already with Lubrizol at that time for about 12 years, it was much easier for me, I think, to convince the organization that this was the right way to go. And frankly, the writing was on the wall. People already saw it. So it wasn't necessarily a hard sell. I think once we started to get into the weeds of creating it, having some measure of political capital was helpful, especially when things go awry, which they often do. (laughs) So having some, I'm going to call it senior EC level cover was really important to have champions within the organization who said, despite this setback, this is still a good idea. And sometimes within organizations of that size, when there is a problem, then the solution is shut it down and not use it as an opportunity to experiment. So for me, it was, hey, this is a organization of scientists. When you fail at a formulation, do you just shut it down? No, you write down what happened and then you try something different in order to make it work. So I think I tried to use that analogy as I was working through this. But at the end of the day, it was really about having the trust of the organization, having conducted myself, hopefully, in all instances as a person with integrity and a person of my word. So if I say I'm going to do it, then I'm going to do it. Gave me the political capital that I needed in order to take the risks that I wanted to take. So then when I got in a room, it was easy to say, this is the direction that we need to go. This is what we need to do. And here's why. But I'm one of those people who always like to have my ducks kind of lined up a little bit. It doesn't always line up with speed (laughs) and innovation. But in an organization that size and that old, sometimes you may have to sacrifice a little speed in order to make sure you have the buy-in and the clarity from your stakeholders within that organization. You know, it's, it's really, really important. So I'll delay a project if it means that I can get certain stakeholders on board and I'll take my time to do that because I know that once they're on board, it's full speed ahead. And, you know, kind of like when your flight is delayed and the captain says, we can make that up in the air. So, so we're delaying right now, but we'll make that up in the air. And that's how I kind of feel sometimes when I need to take a step back and make sure I have the right people at the table. You know, I think that's such important advice because, you know, we've kind of gone through a period of time where, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs kind of adopted that move fast and break things mentality of Silicon Valley, which 
it sounds nice and sounds sexy, but when you're running a business, especially, you know, on the flip side, not a hundred-year-old business, but a self-funded business, that's a really bad business advice. And I think COVID kind of made us all slow down. And I think we have come out the other side of it, maybe being a little more thoughtful. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely the move fast and break things, the hustle hard, the you can't have a job and a business. These are all, in my mind, myths to real success. But what I see often happens with entrepreneurs, especially new entrepreneurs, is they internalize these things. I didn't hustle hard enough, or I should have quit my job. No, you have two kids and a wife. No, you can't quit your job. And you still can create a successful business at the same time. So for me, it's really been about taking ownership, looking at what I need to do in my life to reach a goal. And then doing it my way and being okay with that, not doing it the way experts and critics and influencers and talking heads are telling me to do it. No, they don't know me. <laughs> they don't know my family, my situation. I wanted to do it my way. I wanted to really kind of chart my own path. And if I can help people along the way, I try to. The Accelerator was created to address sort of the indie beauty opportunity. And a lot of people talk about indie beauty as if it's a trend, but in effect, indie beauty brands have always been here. They're a business cycle, right? Estee Lauder was an indie beauty brand at one point, but I do feel like they have taken on a very different role kind of in the digital age, just in sort of the speed they can scale and the impact they can have, but they're still not a monolith and they're all very different both in intention and most definitely there is a difference between those that are venture-backed versus those that are self-funded. Can you share how you work with indies and what is the criteria that you look for? Sure. I guess I'll say four and a half year old program and a hundred year old company, you know, we still kind of consider ourselves a bit of a startup inside of the organization and every day we're learning and we're refining how we work with brands, period. So in the beginning, we looked at brands from a product and ingredient perspective. Does this brand have a voice or a presence that is synergistic with our products and ingredients? And that worked for a while, but we've continued to refine it. And what we think about now is brands that maybe aren't startup startup, just literally getting off the ground. And, and the reason why I say that to be very transparent is sometimes there's a measure of support that those brands require that my small team can't do or can't provide, I should say, can't provide. It makes it really difficult for us to see and for the brand to see all of the value that we are bringing to the table because they're looking for support you know, in some instances, it almost becomes emotional support. And I get it, you know, right? Because they're investing energy and money and they're sacrificing a lot to make their dream come true. And sometimes they just need someone to hold their hand and tell them that it'll be okay. And while my team is, is really happy to do that, they are. We can't always do it in every moment. So it makes it somewhat challenging at times, but uh, we still welcome those startup brands but we, we vet them more thoroughly than we used to. The sweet spot for us, honestly, is we've been working with brands that are coming from tangential industries, 
you know, in fashion, nutraceuticals that already have actually an audience. They understand how a product is made and how it's delivered to a market. They have some channel to distribution. Those tend to be the brands that we see, I'm guessing, I'm saying, the most success with because things can move faster. We actually work with a number of multinational brands. We actually work with with some really big brands as well. And the sweet spot there for them has been speed. So where it might've taken them two or three years to get a product to market because of all the layers, we can do it in less than a year. For them, that's, that's lightning speed. So when we're working with indie brands, for us, it, it really is a matter of synergy with what we're creating, because at the end of the day, we're trying to get our ingredients out into the market too. And the indie brands are a great way for us to be able to do that quickly because they're moving fast. You're not talking to an R&D director. You're talking to the founder a lot of times that's helping get this brand off the ground. She or he can make decisions really, really quickly. So I know that's kind of a roundabout way, but at the end of the day, we tend to work with brands of all sizes, but some of the criteria we think about is how established are you as an indie brand? Can you afford to work through this program with us? And what does that look like? And we try to be flexible there when we can. And is there, of course, synergy with, with our ingredients? Because we start with our ingredients first. We may put competitive ingredients into a formulation if, if the founder or the organization needs it, but we generally start with our ingredients first. So we try to make it as collaborative as we can. Brandon, on an, in, on an ingredient level, you can't really talk about ingredients or indie beauty without talking about clean beauty. And, you know, the clean beauty category, even though it lacks any harmonized meaning and it's completely open to interpretation, has been fueled by indie beauty brands. And it has had a profound impact on the entire beauty ecosystem. But we're now seeing kind of a very different concept of clean beauty because the very premise of it is being challenged. Debates are happening within the clean beauty movement between naturals and synthetic ingredients. The Ordinary just launched an anti-clean product, which kind of is fascinating. But how do you navigate the clean conversation sort of from as an ingredient supplier? And how do you see sort of the future of the movement evolving? I think there will be a, a point of homeostasis, if I could use that term. That's the best one I could think of. There's going to be a balancing of the scales somewhere. Uh, they've tipped one way in one direction for a long time. They're tipping in another direction. Now, I think at some point there's just going to be a balance, if not some type of organization that's going to come along, that's going to garner the support of brands to say, this is the standard and everyone is going to agree to it or sign on to it because they're going to want the credibility associated with whatever that organization is or will be. For now, when we talk about clean, when we think about natural, of course, a portion of our portfolio is natural and sustainable. Most of it is sustainable. A portion is natural. A portion is clean in the terms, I guess, that are loosely described that way. But a portion is synthetic. And when we think about our synthetic ingredients, we believe in many instances that synthetic can be sustainable. 
And that's kind of the mantra that Luperzal has continued to march on by, is that synthetic is sustainable. When you think about some of the natural ingredients that are out there today, the amount of water and energy and resources required to convert them into what's needed to go into a beauty product, uh, vastly, in my, of course, opinion, outweigh the benefit uh, that they are delivering to the market from a beauty perspective versus a synthetic ingredient. If it's safe, uh, not causing harm to the environment or to people, and is using less resources, then why not embrace it as a part of your your formulation? And I guess I'm biased because of where I work, but I think I would reasonably adopt that approach if I wasn't at Luberzal, is that I want to do what's best for the environment. And sometimes that might mean choosing a synthetic ingredient over a natural one. Where it really gets interesting is when you start to work with these brands on creating finished products and you've got retailer one saying this is clean and retailer two saying this is clean and or natural, et cetera. And they want to be in all of the retailers <laughs> trying to get to a place where the brand understands that they can't be all things to all people. They're going to have to make a decision because it's costing them a lot of money and time and energy to reformulate every time that list, that blacklist changes to add something else. And I was at a conference. This was back when I was still in sales. And we were talking to a retailer and they were asking about how they create their blacklist. That question came up and the retailer was like, it's part science and it's part optics. There are some things that are, we know they're bad and they're on the list. There are some things that just look bad. And they're on the list too. <laughs> and those lists also don't take into account that the context, right? So a lot of these ingredients are not inherently bad. It depends on how they're used, the percentage they're used. And that whole nuance, which is honestly sort of the crux of what makes something clean or not, is lost in the conversation. Absolutely. And I think that there has to be some level of reasonableness injected into the conversation. Because a lot of times I find myself in conversations where they get almost as heated as if Democrats and Republicans were talking. I'm hoping that reasonable minds will ultimately prevail in this conversation uh, because there's room for both and there's good in both. Neither are inherently bad. It's just trying to find and maybe agree or agree to disagree uh, on where that line or likely multiple lines <laughs> exist in trying to deliver to customers a wonderful experience in their beauty products and at the same time cause as little harm, not any harm, no harm, while doing it. Well, hopefully we can pick up this conversation when we have our summit in L.A. and in September. <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> you know, on that note, you know, when we first met at um, an Intercost conference right before the world, as we know it, completely shut down, it was literally the last trip I took for two years. And we sort of immediately connected on the fact that we both actively seek out sources of inspiration that are not attached to the beauty industry. I'm dying to know what kind of gets your creative juices flowing these days. 
Yeah. So I think the biggest thing, and, and this is probably the staple, despite whatever other creative outlets I look to, is conversation. I am blessed to be able to have conversations with some of the most amazing people uh, in the world, you know, folks like you, Kelly, and I get energy and I get my creative juices flowing in conversations with people uh, that one, also enjoy conversation <laughs> and two, where I know I can learn from them, maybe something that I didn't know. So conversation, kind of interacting with people is one of those places that really gets my creative juices flowing. And that's saying a lot because I'm a bit of an introvert. So conversations don't generally flow easy. <laughs> I know you say that, but like, I just don't see it. <laughs> I know everybody says that, but I'm definitely one of those folks who, okay, I've, I've had my time. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm ready to go be by myself for a moment and, and recharge, right? You know, one of the things that I've been looking at recently, and I don't know how this fascination all of a sudden kind of blossomed, are wine bottle labels. I have a strong passion around wine. Mostly I like to drink it, but I like to learn about it too. And I started walking through wine shops, looking at the labels on the bottles and the messages that these wineries were trying to convey to a consumer. When you walk into a wine shop, you are greeted with thousands, hundreds, whatever of bottles. And most of the time we make the decision based upon the wine label. Uh, what does that wine bottle look like? So it just really got me got me thinking about how we do this in the beauty space. How do we, in the midst of the sea of serums, convey on a label, one label, usually really small, pick me up. Don't pick up the guy or the girl next to me, right? So I don't know. I've just been really fascinated with it. I've actually reached out to some wineries to ask if I could talk to their art team to understand, well, what was the real motivation behind why you did this to the label or why the bottle is shaped this way? And I'm thinking about that more because brands, when they're coming to us for support, even though they often provide their own artwork to us, a lot of times they ask us for input into that artwork, not just from a regulatory and legal perspective, but from a, how do you think this is going to resonate with the market perspective? So I'm, I'm starting to kind of get into that season where I'm, I'm really uh, fixated on the artwork associated with beauty products and what are we conveying to consumers when, when we create a package? Is it good? Is it harmful? Are we sending the message that we think we really want to send? And what's going to make a consumer pick up that bottle of serum or whatever it might happen to be? I, I don't know. I'm just really fascinated with that right now. So I do feel like, um, I feel like we're kind of in this time of not only innovation, because I do feel like there's a lot of innovation kind of bubbling up of ideas and ways of shopping that we could have never even comprehended. I also feel like we're going back to building brands with longevity. You know, we went through sort of the blanding stage of all those D to C brands. And then we sort of the pendulum shifted to, I guess, kind of this Gen Z aesthetic that is one part nostalgia and like crazy clashes of color. But, you know, those all kind of have their 
time and place, but they don't really fit the parameters of building a brand that lasts. I find more and more entrepreneurs that are sort of building legacy brands and slow down to sort of think through those things. And so I find your your reference to wine bottles really interesting because on some level, most of them, except for sort of the really, the newer producers, there is sort of a classic design element that's very font driven, which is hard to achieve. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I kind of liken what's happening in beauty to what happens in fashion, right? There are some things that come in and then they go out and they may circle back again in a decade or so, but they come in and they come out. But there are some things that are always there. The little black dress, always there. It's always there. It's not going anywhere. The navy suit, you know, or the gray suit for the guy. Uh, it's always there. It's it's not going anywhere. And then you have these things that kind of move in and out around it. And I, I do think that when I think about packaging and design and even claims that are being made around uh, beauty products, that that's the ebb and flow. I wholeheartedly agree. The brands that are creating something that is timeless, something that looks good today, but it also looks good in 10 years. <laughs> And it still resonates with an audience, not their audience that they got 10 years ago, but the, the new audience today uh, still resonates with an audience is really powerful, but it's really hard to do. It's, it's really, really hard to do. But the brands that are, are nailing it, I think, will be the brands that, that you'll see in a decade from now and two decades from now, definitely. So I'd love to sort of end on a personal note. We've gone through this cultural reckoning with the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's really shined a line on systemic racism in our culture, but also in the beauty industry. And I was wondering how you've navigated this moment in time holding a position of leadership in a multinational company as a Black man. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, in the days after the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent trial of the police officer who murdered him, there were a lot of difficult conversations that were happening inside of Lubrizol and what Lubrizol's response uh, to this was going to be. There are a good amount of people that recognize themselves as African-Americans within Lubrizol, and they didn't necessarily all feel safe, not safe from something happening within Lubrizol, but just safe generally. And there was a certain amount of trauma, or there is a certain amount of trauma associated with getting up every day and you want to watch the weather, and you're greeted with these views of someone in a position of trust and authority harming unnecessarily or killing someone that looks like me. So it was important for me to take a step back in that moment and, of course, practice my own self-care and ensure that my boys, I have two beautiful black boys, uh, 14 and 10, who are my heart and my wife. I wanted to make sure that they were protected and that they felt safe and that their questions around what was happening were answered. 
But professionally, a group of us, not just me, but a group of us went to our our CEO and we said, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to say to Black, Indigenous, people of color, folks that look like me, in order for us to know that you support us and that you have our back? And that was one of the first times. So Lubrizol actually issued a statement condemning what happened. And that was one of the first times that they've ever done that that they've ever issued any type of statement along the political lines around that. Our affinity groups and our resource groups also started to shift internally. So they went from uh, more social organizations for people that look like you and me to kind of get together and get to know one another, kind of like the picnic, the cookout, (laughs) they went to more advocacy internally. So internally within the organization, those were some of the things that, you know, I tried to be a part of, I tried to support and be involved in getting moving. So now our affinity groups really are focusing on missions of advocacy around the protected group that they represent and including allies as a part of those groups. Uh, in order to have the global support that they need in order to push the advocacy that they want to push. And then externally, taking the opportunity to find places where brands that were represented by founders of color existed because they can't all afford to come to these trade shows and things like that and finding ways to be able to support them where they are. And it, it may not be the full complement of what the accelerator program might have to offer, but are there ways that we can support them anyway? And uh, thinking about now, recently, thinking about are there opportunities for us to invest either in brands or programs that support organizations that have founders in the BIPOC community in order to see them grow? Because one of the trends that I see happening is you're going to see more brands with black and brown people on store shelves that may not have even had the audience with these retailers before. I don't see that kind of letting up for a while. I see these brands owning their space within beauty and not saying, okay, brand over here, you want to speak to me, great. Uh, You want to make some stuff that looks good on me, great. Thank you. I appreciate it. No, we're owning our stuff and we're saying, no, I'm going to create something for my community because I I know it better than anybody else, right? I live it every day. So I'm going to create something for my community. So I, I think you're going to start seeing more brands take ownership over how they support their communities and creating products that lift up and support their communities, which I think is just terrific. I'm going to go a step further and say that I think that they're going to be the next crop of acquisitions by strategics. Absolutely. You're already starting to see it, right? You're already starting to see these brands that, you know, and maybe I'm, again, a little biased, maybe a little jaded, that probably wouldn't have gotten the audience before with VCs and private equity and corporate investors, retailer investors that are really saying, we better understand today than we did before the value that you bring to our space. And we're going to try to honor that by investing in you in some way. I think that's awesome. And I think you're going to see more 
investors that look like me. Uh, you're going to see more VCs and PEs that are managed and run by black and brown people that are going to be investing in their own communities. And they're going to be investing in founders that support and uplift their communities. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your personal story. I think that's how we learn. The conversations are never easy. I think they're so important because we kind of have to keep the conversation going and, and moving forward. Absolutely. And Kelly, thanks for the invitation. It's always nice to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. And hope to see you soon over a glass of wine talking about trends. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or gossip. We can do that too. <laughs> or gossip or both. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. Hi, I'm Brandon. And for me, it's a matter of transformation because if you're going to move industries, you got to think bigger. For Brandon, it's a matter of transformation. Effectively making change happen inside a large organization and transforming thinking to embrace an innovative mindset mandates striking the proper balance between change and stability. Luberzal's Accelerator program has evolved, finding its footing through leveraging its consumer market knowledge and scientific expertise to provide innovative, market-ready solutions for brands to fuel growth. Bringing big ideas from incubation to reality necessitates cross-functional buy-in and the support of leadership. Achieved through the competent articulation of complex new ideas delivered with the communication skills of a diplomat. If you've ever had a conversation with Brandon, it's easy to see why he's so good in his role. So in the end, it's a matter of transformation. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.